0: If you have a, a Bible, I would welcome you to grab one. We're going to be in Mark's Gospel. No surprise there, uh, chapter twelve, kind of uh, uh, leading us almost out of this chapter. And if you've been reading ahead, uh, you see what is ahead. You see chapter thirteen uh, in 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 some context of some eschatological uh, discussions that we will be having uh, from that chapter. So. Yay me for trying to figure it all out. Anyway, Mark chapter 12, we're going to pick it up in verse 18 and go through uh, maybe 27. We'll do that. If you don't own a Bible, we have some Bibles out in the lobby for you, uh, some paperback ESV Bibles. Uh, If you don't own one, please take one. That's our gift uh, to you. Otherwise, uh, feel free to follow along on the screen and or on a, a mobile app of some sort. You there? All right, verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him. Who say that there is no resurrection? And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, surprised, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as well. And Jesus said to them, listen to his answer, is this not the reason You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and I am the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. You are quite wrong. Uh, Before we dive into this, let's go one more time before our Lord and pray over our reading of the word. Father, yet again, we come to you um, and we ask, Father, that you by your spirit would give us ears to hear, give us... Um, eyes to see you for who you really are, give us a heart to receive that which you would want us to receive, and I believe that what you want us to receive is the power of your resurrection. So God, I pray that, Lord, that as we leave this place, that every single man and woman in this room would be able to say, behold, our King Jesus, how glorious he is, and it's in your name we pray, Amen. It seems like a broken record at this point, doesn't it? If you've been following along with us for some time, where it just seems like, you know, this line of questioning, there just is no end to the questioning. They are trying to build some sort of dramatic tension between Jesus and the crowds that are around Jesus, so that, in essence, so that they can trap Jesus. I don't, you know, at this point, if I'm Jesus, I'm like, enough with the questions. You guys are just buffoons. Leave me alone. You know, just go away. And, and we, we ought to be grateful that none of us are, are Jesus, right? Because this would be our line of thinking. And in fact, if we're just honest, like, you know, I don't mind questions. I don't mind questions of theology, questions on what we believe, questions on uh, those types of things. But it's the type of questions that, that that someone's trying to trap you or trying to trick you into answering it in a way that makes you almost look foolish. That's what they're doing. It's like, it's like if you're on a job interview or maybe uh, you're, you're dating or, or whatever, and, and the person has given you a lot of questions, and, and you've got to be careful in how you answer those questions because those questions are likely laced with, if you answer the question incorrectly, then this whole thing is going to erode right under our feet. Like, think about that on a job, if you're being interviewed on a job, like if somebody asks you a question, you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I've just stepped into a line of questioning where this person is trying to trap me, and if I answer this in the wrong way, then I won't get the the job. Now, obviously, Jesus is not going to answer it incorrectly. You don't go toe-to-toe with the wits of Jesus, and, and even thinking that you're going to trap him. However, there must have been for the listener this idea that, man, if he gets this question wrong, then they finally trapped him. They finally have a case to be brought up to the Roman Empire that Jesus is an insurrectionist that you can now imprison him, kick him out, or kill him. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to question him. And it's been like since uh, maybe it was the beginning or maybe it was chapter 11 when they started with all these questions with, well, what about the vineyard? Well, what about taxes? And each time Jesus is launching these grenades and making them look so foolish that it would, you would think that they would stop asking the questions. But they don't. They send every religious sect that there is to go after him, to stop him, to trap him, just so they can go back to the government to have this joker killed. That's their motive. That's their intention. Why? Because they don't like Jesus. This young 30-year-old, 33-year-old carpenter from Galilee who's, who's causing all these crowds to come to him, He's got all these people coming. He's got, he's speaking with authority. And you got to understand these religious people are like, no way. There will not, it will, this will not be the Messiah. This cannot be. He is an unlearned dude. He, he's from Galilee. Can anything good come from there? That's their question they asked previously, or one of the disciples asked. He's a carpenter. He just doesn't fit the mold. No way he can be it. So what are we going to do? We're, we're going we're to get him, make him go away. And whether that is him fleeing the country or what they would prefer, putting him to death, they're going to see to it that they put Jesus in this movement completely out. He is a marked man. But by law, remember this from last week, by law, they cannot kill him. There has to be... Something that he says that if he says that he is uh or, or if they can trap him with these questions and they can make him uh give them these claims that they're seeking after, then they can go legally to the government and have the government squish him out. And they're running a risk because the crowds love him. And this is a very high-risk uh mission, I guess we can say, that that these, these jokers Are on. And so they now send the Sadducees. Let me give you a little context about Sadducees before we dive into this text this morning. Um, The Sadducees, they were very wealthy, affluent, well educated priests. They only adhered to the Torah. What is the Torah? It's the five first books of the Bible, right? It is the Pentateuch. They only adhered to the Torah. They did not adhere to any of the prophecies, um, or, or, or this extra biblical thing that we have called the Mishnah. They did not adhere to that, which was just some oral traditions that were passed down uh, throughout the era of the Old Testament. got um, because, because the Pharisees, they were OCD about that Mishnah, but the Sadducees, they were not. Interesting thing about the Sadducees that is pointed out in this text is that they did not believe in the resurrection. And if you went to Sunday school, this is when you would say that is why the Sadducees we're sad. I have some really good material today. Actually, it seems like I'm getting more pathetic each week with my, anyway, but, uh, or maybe desperate's a better word, all right? Now, they had this idea. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They also didn't believe in angels either, which is going to be interesting that Jesus points this out. They were very wealthy, very affluent, and in some regard, the Sadducees were hinged on the success of the Roman Empire. So if the Roman Empire leaves, then they're threatened, and and their power that they have will too have to flee. So they had this idea, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then then there is this... um, I guess a secularist idea today that even kind of flaunts itself around is nothing really new under the sun, as the Bible would say, uh, that, that, that you live for the day. So if I don't believe in the resurrection, these Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection. They're wealthy. They're affluent. They're on the cover of, you know, magazines. They don't have magazines back then. I'm just trying to get you to think through this, right? They're Instagram influencers, right? This is the type of people that they were. And so they had this idea and this mantra of... Live today, because tomorrow we die, and there's nothing after this. So we're going to gorge out. We're going to we're going to accumulate as much wealth as we can and spend it all. Find the finest wines and and indulge in your pleasures and your desires. In fact, um, I don't recommend reading from the apocrypha, because some of it is, uh, some of it is not. Um, I guess we could say authentic, uh, but there is something that was written in the Apocrypha that uh, that addresses sort of what the the Sadducees believed into. And, and I'll quote this: This is from the Wisdom of Solomon. It's in, it's found in the Apocrypha. You can read it for yourself. It quote: "For the ungodly said, reasoning with themselves, but not uh, right. Our life is short and tedious." and in death of a man there is no remedy neither was there any man known to have returned from the grave for we are born at all adventure and we shall by be hereafter as though we had never been for the breath in our nostrils is as smoke and a little spark in the moving of our heart which being extinguished our body shall be turned into ashes and our spirit shall vanish as the soft air and our name shall be forgotten in time and no man shall have our works in remembrance and this is depressing by the way and our life shall pass away as the trace of a cloud and shall be dispersed as a mist that is driven away with the beams of the sun and overcome with the uh, heat thereof for our time is a very shadow that passeth away and after our End. There is no returning for it is fast sealed so that no man cometh again. Come on, therefore, let us enjoy the good things that are present and let us speedily use the creatures like as in youth. Let us fill ourselves with costly wine and ointments and and let no flower of the spring pass us by. Let us crown ourselves with rosebuds before they withered. Let none of us go without his part of Uh, Of these things, let us leave tokens of our joyfulness in every place, for this is our portion and our lot is this. Does this sound familiar at all? It is the ethos of American culture, it is the ethos of our American society, really, all of Western mentality. That essentially, life is all there is. There is no hope of the, the afterlife. There is none of that. So let's make money. Let's eat good food. Let's drink good beer, good wine, good whiskey, have really good coffee. Let's go on extravagant Uh, you know, lifestyle type of extravagant vacations. Let's live our life to the fullest now because when we die, there's nothing there for us. So isn't it interesting how like nothing really changes? I say that all the time because it's so true. Nothing changes. This thought is, you know, maybe... Uh, several thousand years old and here we are in a culture that still aligns itself with some type of thought like this let us drink for tomorrow we die let's party it up because tomorrow we die now with that in context why are these sadducees asking because you have to ask this question they don't believe in resurrection, then why are the Sadducees asking about resurrection? That's the question that we have to ask and that's being presented to us. Now, let me talk about the importance of resurrection and the thought of resurrection, if I can, and and, and really the importance of this for the Jewish listener and the Jewish audience. What seems like a basic theology question about resurrection is going to have I guess we could say it's a dangerous um, context behind it for a first century. Dangerous on two levels. A question of resurrection in ancient Israel is dangerous on two levels. The first level is this. The explicit passage on resurrection in the Bible concerning Ezekiel 37. Do I have any um, Ezekiel people in here? It's a weird book. There's a reason why maybe one person just raised their hand, okay? I mean, it's strange. It is like that of something out of a horror flick. Dry bones doing what? That's walking dead stuff, y'all. Dry bones getting up and walking? All right, so we think of that, like we think of like some kind of cartoon fantasy where like these cute little bones just come up and they piece together and they're like playing the ukulele or whatever on their rib bones. And and you know, you've seen those dumb cartoons or maybe I'm making this up in my own head. Maybe I need therapy, I don't know. Um, And so they're just all walking. No, this is a terrifying event and this isn't something literal that's happening either. Ezekiel 37 is a prophetic word that Yahweh gives to the prophet. And he says, Israel is, I guess we could say almost dead. They're dying. They're in exile. But, but the Lord gives this promise of resurrection of the nation of Israel. That one day the nation of Israel, which seems like an army of dead bones, is going to be given life and resurrection and they will march again. Now, this is dangerous. This is a dangerous idea. Because who is the ruling authority? Rome. So the idea of resurrection for the Jewish listener would be that they would be given life again. And they wouldn't be out in exile. But All of Israel would come back together and take back what was theirs. That's in light of what they're talking about. And they believe in resurrection. And this is the other reason why this is a a, a dangerous thought. Because if you believe in resurrection, then you believe, then you are likely, more likely to do something that's risky. In this case, go to war with Rome. So if you believe, one, that God's going to breathe life back into Israel, and it's going to be like this dry bone army, right? That's the context. And then if you also believe in the resurrection of the, of the hereafter, of, of that, you know what? If I'm going to be with God, then I have more of an opportunity to take a risk, Now do you see why these Sadducees, who don't even believe in resurrection, are asking Jesus about resurrection because the context is important in this situation? Because if they can trap Jesus into saying, I'm here to raise back the army, then they go back to Rome, they go back to Caesar, or they go back to Pilate or whoever in the governing authority, and they say, we've got our insurrectionists. You can go kill him now because what he is insinuating here is that Israel, he is going to lead an army and they're about to overthrow you. So you understand now why uh, a, a person of like that of a Sadducee doesn't believe in the resurrection is going to ask Jesus about the resurrection because they want him to say the very thing that will allow them to go back to the governing authority to have him killed. These are tricky little sinisters, aren't they? I mean, these guys did their homework. These guys are asking the questions to trip you up. But thankfully, again, I go back to what I said. You don't do that with the wit of Jesus. I mean, the very spoken word that created things. You don't do that with him. Now, with all that in mind, it's, that's all by way of introduction. I'll get into this text a little bit more, and I promise you I'll be done in just a few moments. And by that, I mean 10 or 15 minutes. Let me just work through a couple of these things because I want to I address this question. So the Sadducees... You're already an expert on the Sadducees. You you see this? They come to them and they go with the question, "Teacher," they said, "Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must wear marry uh, the man must marry rather the widow, raise of offspring." And they go on and on and on with like what this seems like this soap opera type of situation, right? Now, just to just by way of passing, you don't have to turn there, but this is. Um, Let me turn us back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, way back towards the beginning of their Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Just to give you a little context here, uh, in 25 verse 5, here it is. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother in law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead husband so that his name will not be blotted out in Israel. Now, keep in mind, however you want to view that, this is 3000 ish um, BC, okay? Now, this seems like a little weird, obscure law. But in reality, what it was doing was, for this time period, there was this importance of passing down the lineage or the heritage of these, these people's last name so, or, or the son of, okay? So, so let's just do a little very, very weird analogy here. So if I were to die and we didn't have any offspring... My wife then would go be with my brother if he was not married, and then she would have a child with him. And and and, and some of you are like, hey, no way, you going to be with my brother? My brother's weird." And 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 anyway, I need to move on. And so, uh, and so that child would not be the son of my brother, but that child would be the son of Matthew. It was a way to pass down the lineage. Now, that's just by way of passing. Let's keep reading verse 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 25. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate uh, his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call to him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders. This is hilarious, y'all. And pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face and she, I'm not making this up, and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who has not uh, built up his brother's house, and the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal put off and his face spat upon. So my young ladies, listen to me, for you who are not married in this room, if that dude calls off the wedding, You come to me or you find Dan Bush or you find Robin McGinnis and we will take our sandal off and you go back to that fella and you can spit in his face and we'll mark him as the dude. The dude who had his sandal pulled off. Some of you say the Bible is not a very dramatic book. You've not read the Bible It is quite hilarious in some of the things that happens in this book. And if you think, where have I heard this from? You're probably thinking of the story of Ruth. You may be sort of, her husband is dead. She's left with no source of income, no property, right, if you remember this. No agriculture, no way to make money. And she starts to flirt with a very wealthy relative, Boaz. And he does fall in love with her but there's a closer relative, right? You remember the story? And so they, they go to the elders at the gate, which is just in court of justice, the system of the day. And they go to the elders and the man, the closer relatives, and he takes off his sandal. And that's by way of where we've probably heard this. Now back to Mark chapter 12. So the Sadducees bring up this very, and I have to say this, this very obscure law that you find in Deuteronomy and they lay out like the most hypothetical um, situations that you could ever think of. And if the story doesn't sound depressing initially, by the end of it, well, she dead too. And you're, just, you're like, which Lifetime movie did they pick this story from? Very dramatic in a sense. But in reality, what they're asking them is not necessarily about marriage, they understand marriage, they understand how God, if they believe in the Torah, which they do, they understand that God has ordained marriage between one man and one, one woman, and they, that that is the cumulation of the Imago day. They know the picture of God's paradigm for marriage, and they know, understand all of these things. And so Jesus, obviously, they're thinking that your theology of resurrection is just superstition, And it is of no value. And we want you just to answer this in a way so that we can finally trap you. And then we look at Jesus' reply to them and his answer. And Jesus said to them, here's, (laughs) Jesus says to them, I I notice you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. That's essentially what Jesus says. You don't know the, the scripture and you don't know the power of God. I want you to think about that for a second because these people, as part of their, um, as part of their uh, resume, right, they know Scripture. They pride themselves in the Torah. And Jesus basically just slapped them back. He'd <laughs> be like, you go into a NASA engineer. I'm like, dude, you don't know nothing about no space and aerodynamic stuff. And then by that point, the guy tells you, Get out of my face. It's like you coming to um, maybe a, a, a loan officer or someone who, who has studied loans, and, they, and you look at them and say, You know nothing about interest rates. And then they look at you and we're like, You can leave now. This is what Jesus basically did to them. He's like, you actually, the reality of it is, is that you know nothing about the word and you know nothing about the power of God. Those are the two realities that Jesus is flipping the script on that you and I need to really pay attention to. That the indictment Jesus gives to these jokers cannot be an indictment that he would ever say of us as his church hear that. I never want Christ, Jesus, to look at his church and say to his church, you don't know the word and you don't know the power of God. What an indictment that is. That we would not know the word nor the power of Christ. And so he goes on, he says, when the dead rises, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, just a couple of quick things out of this, because it almost gives us this view of heaven that I don't really have time to get into. And, and, <laughs> and thankfully, I'm, I won't get into that too much. Uh, but I want to just pull out a couple things that he's not saying in a sense that we will, um, that, that we will be spiritual beings in a sense where we're just spiritual. But, but as we know from Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians, that we will also have a body. But but the body will not be animated by a heart of blood, but the body will be animated in heaven by the spirit of God. So he's dispelling this belief that there won't be uh, a, a something that happens uh, that, that this is all that there is. Jesus is addressing an eschatological view of the end. And here's the end. You're going to be in heaven. You're going to be with him. That's the end. You're going to have a spiritual body. When the dead rises, he says. And then he says, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, (laughs) hang with me for just a second. Notice what what the words of Jesus are right here in this text. Did you hear what he said? So, so and, and bear with me now, in heaven, this isn't a thing. This right here, the, it's rubber, by the way. I'm not that strong where I would be like bending titanium or something like that. I'm not Superman. This rubbery thing, because I kept losing mine. This, so $10 rubber band. Uh, this rubber band, that won't be a thing in heaven anymore. Why? What was the purpose of marriage? Human flourishment, procreation, having the helper, being in that completed Imago Day image. Well, well, when I think about heaven then, where is all of my satisfaction found? Is it found in my marriage? Is it found in, in having children? Because that, that was for the things of the earth. mm because all that I will need, I will be fully satisfied, perfectly known with no need of anything that will be found in Christ in heaven for eternity. So this dispels a myth that we will be married in heaven. Now, I, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I know you because some of you are rejoicing inter- internally right now. Like, I, I, I felt it. I felt some of you. Some of you are like, thank God. There is a way out. But if you've been blessed like myself, who's had an incredible marriage, you know, that, that does kind of like, what? Here's what I know about relationships, and here's what here's what Here's what I believe about this, about this type of, and, and I'll keep moving because I, I, I don't want to get too deep into this. Um, if, what Jesus is insinuating then is that this idea of resurrection is this, not a continuation of the mundane, but a continuation of intimacy with the people of God so that we know each other on a fuller level and that will never, and like this, this relation, this friendship will continue and last and will be known with each other on this intimate level. There will be no need for any of those things. There's not a doubt in my mind that when I step into eternity, that I will recognize my wife. There's not a doubt in my mind that when I step into eternity, that I'll see some of y'all, hopefully all of y'all. There's not a doubt in my mind. And those relationships will be uh, deeper deeper in deeper. So Jesus is essentially saying like your entire vision of the resurrection is completely off. And, you, and, and in the coming of the world, you're just off base. And so notice what Jesus says. I'm going to try to hurry this thing up uh, because Jesus is going to tell them if they, it's so funny. If you believe in the Torah, you. so he brings up Moses, right? So like, How can you not see resurrection when you think of Moses? Because when you think of Moses, when God appeared to him at the bush is what Jesus refers to, right? God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice what God does not say, because this will have huge implications on how you view resurrection. God does not say, I was the God, implying that Abraham is dead and no more. But God is implying in his word that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Meaning that there has to be some place that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still are. That he is continuing to be their God because they have not been, as the fatalists would say, just, you know, as the Sadducees would say, that they just, they just disappeared. They were no more. So Jesus launches this little kind of like, it's almost like a little dig in their theology. And he's like, yeah, yeah. You you say you adhere to the scripture, but actually let's be honest. You know nothing about scripture. You can't even see the resurrection happening before your eyes, even in the five books you adhere to. Jesus tells them essentially, you don't know the word. And here's the other indictment he tells them. You don't understand the power of God. Why does he, how does he say this? Because God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. So what Jesus just did to them and what he does to you and I, do you not understand the word of God? Do you not understand the power of God? As I read this, that leaps out to me a little bit that leaps out to me because I want to, man, I want to know God. I want to know Jesus. I want to be immersed in his word. I want his word to read me. and I want to the, the, see Christ in all that he is, the revelation of God in his word. And I want us to know his word, right? It was Calvin when he, when he went back to his church in Geneva. He said, we're going to be creatures of the word, like that, that should be our heart's desire to be creatures of the Word so that we know God. How do we know God? Well, God is revealed to us in His Word. That's how we know God. That we be a church that knows God and not just knows God, but we know the power of God. And in this context, what is the power of God? Come on, resurrection. I don't want to just sit here and read the word and just absorb it for myself and just keep it to myself. I want the word of God to come alive out of me so that others can be regenerated, so that others can experience that same power of God, which is the resurrection. It's seeing people come from death to life. And that has to be the cry of our church. That has to be a cry because the church has just given into this, this kind of, because there's a word of warning in here if you're not missing it, and that is, you know, a lot of times the churchers are like, you're just the Pharisee. You ever heard that before? Or that church is just filled with Pharisees, just stuck in their legalism. They're just telling me what to do. They're all up in my business. Right, y'all ever heard that before? Maybe not out here in the West, but it was so full of it in the South because every church in the South is just a pharisaical just nonsense. But, But the more damning thing is is that churches aren't filled with Pharisees. They're filled with Sadducees. They're filled with Sadducees because here's how I know this. They're living for themselves. They're living for what can I gain for today? What can I eat the finest food? Can I drink the finest beer, which there is no such thing because all beer is nasty. And Can I I drink the finest wines or the finest whatever? And I'm going to live my life for today because tomorrow we die and there's there's no sense in thinking about the hereafter. You know what that is? We're serving the God of hedonism the God of pleasure, the God of lust, the God of what can satisfy me right now. Churches are not filled with Pharisees, they're filled with Sadducees. A person living for themselves, feasting upon the day because tomorrow we die. So then there, so then there is this question that comes from that idea. And it is, how are you living for eternity? Because that's what's being asked. How you view eternity, it matters. Because if you're not viewing eternity from a biblical lens, then you are viewing eternity from the lens of a Sadducee. Oh, I just die and everything else just withers away. So I'll live for it. But if we're reviewing eternity through the Bible and through what Jesus is saying here in his words, that when the dead arise, then that's going to dramatically shift my thinking in everything that I do it's going to dramatically shift how I spend my money. It's going to dramatically shift on how I live my life, how I raise my children, because I want them to experience this phrase and when the dead arise and be with Christ, that's what we live for. That I want my generation to follow me and, and be able to say that when Christ calls me home, I will be raised with him. Now How you view eternity, it matters. It matters significantly. Now, notice I'm not saying how you view how we get there. I'm not talking about tribulations and post-tribulations and all minimalism and all these other isms that I can think of. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about, do you understand that you will be with Christ forever? Because if you understood you will be with Christ forever, then how you live here today will hold such a weight and significance in how you live your day-to-day life. That's what Jesus is presenting to us. How are you living your life? How are you living your life? And do you have a love for the word of God and a power of God to see the power of God manifest in other people's lives so that they're being raised from death to life? we ought to take note that this, not to be like these Sadducees. And that if this is me, and that if this is you, you have to ask God, help you, remove that from your life. And we have to resolve in our hearts to know the scriptures and know the power of God so that when we're asked our story, when we're asked What is your belief? We have this hope and we have this story to tell.